Spring is here, and you can now get almost anything you need for your sunny days delivered with Uber Eats. What do we mean by almost? Well, you can't get a well-groomed lawn delivered, but you can get a chicken parmesan delivered. A cabana? That's a no. But a banana? That's a yes. A nice tan? Sorry. Nope. But a box fan? Happily yes. A day of sunshine? No. A box of fine wines? Yes. Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol in select markets. Product availability may vary by region. See app for details. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Hello and welcome to another Bike Radar podcast. My name is Simon Bromley, I'm a technical writer for BikeRadar.com and I'm joined today by Jack Luke, assistant editor for BikeRadar.com. Hi Jack. Hi Simon, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm really good, thank you. Uh, I got out for a nice little sunny bike ride this morning to, to test out a couple of new bits of gear, so I'm feeling very fruity. And in between all of that, I believe you've been watching with a hawkish eye for the latest, greatest and juiciest tech in a big bicycle race that's currently going on in Italy. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's right. So we're, today we're going to talk about the Giro d'Italia, do a little uh, tech roundup, and it isn't going to be the kind of usual kind of new things that we spotted kind of tech roundup because actually there's not really been that much. But we're going to scrape the bottom of the deepest barrel to come up with, <laughs> <laughs> to come up with some juicy, juicy things to talk about. And so, yeah, I made a few notes. It's been a good race. And uh, yeah, let, let's start off with, I think, my favourite kind of tech story slash just sort of racing story of the race so far. And that was... Uh, Taco van der Horn's solo breakaway win on, I think it was stage four or five. It was early on in the race anyway, but um, a really, really fantastic win for the, from, for the, for the rider from Team Intermarche, Wanty Gober, Matera, <laughs> I can't say it. But anyway, it's, a, it's, it's one of the smaller <laughs> world tour teams and he's a, you know, he's not a kind of big star name rider, but he really kind of outfoxed a bunch and, uh, Obviously, from my point of view, what was very exciting to see because he had a very optimised setup 
and he Tybo's really looked like he could have been uh i don't know there's a real kind of a look i'll call it to competitive time trial racing in the uk where everybody follows the the church of dan bigham and uh goes for a whole host of very common optimizations, we'll call them. And Old Taco definitely fitted the bill perfectly with this. And you, I mean, you went bananas for it. You wrote a whole article for it on leading multidiscipline bicycle website, bikeradar.com. Yeah, so he had it all. You know, he had the kind of like, he had the, he had the body position nailed. So he, had, he was using kind of narrower than normal handlebars. He was riding with his kind of forearms uh, horizontal to, or parallel to the ground, resting on the the hoods rather than the drops, and and you know, ourselves and a number of other people have tested that. It's a very aerodynamically efficient position. He was wearing a kind of uh, an, you know like a time trial skin suit really, but with one with pockets sewn on, and that's made by British company No Pins. It's very another aerodynamic piece of clothing. You know, he had an aero helmet with the vents taped up. He had an aero bike, which is a very nice aero bike, and uh, he was also using uh, tubeless wheels, a Continental GP5000 tubeless tyres on those. And again, so really fast setup. And um, yeah, he basically binned off his breakaway companions and the sprint teams who were kind of, you know, umming and ahhing about who was going to do the chasing just gave him a little bit too much rope and he you know, took the win against all odds. And if you really think about how long the odds are of taking a kind of solo breakaway win on a sprint stage... You know, it's very, very long. So a really, really impressive ride and one that I was very happy to see. Now, of course, we have to stress that he's also quite clearly pretty good at riding bikes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, having a well-optimized setup definitely isn't enough for you to win the Giro. Otherwise, Simon, I mean, you're the most optimized person I know. You would be winning every single stage, but that isn't the case. But cumulatively, over the course of an entire day, these things definitely do add up and... If you're riding out in the front on your own, well, you want to be as slippery and fast as possible. So I don't think it's a stretch by any means to say that it definitely contributed to his win. Yeah, and I think, you know, of course, you know, he's an elite world tour cyclist and he's a he's a hitter, as the common parlance might be. But then, you know, you have to remember that everyone in the peloton is a hitter. You know, you like being an elite cyclist is the ticket to get you in the door at the Giro. So you know, the margins are small. And I think, you know, I think these things do make a difference. They certainly make a difference to how fast I'm able to go. And that's not very fast, but certainly more than the kind of power that I put through the pedal suggests that I should be able to go. So yeah, it's about using, you know, you know, Lance Armstrong used to love to say that cycling is chess on wheels. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a naff saying. But yeah, you know, you've got to use your brain as well as your legs. And like, I think, you know, Taco did that really well. And it was really, it's always nice to see an underdog win. So absolutely, that was great. And I mean, one with such a spectacular name as well. Absolutely. A real classic uh, kind of Euro pro cycling name. So congratulations, Taco. Hats off. We quite often use um, a tool called Google Trends in our work to kind of see where peaks of interest are in various products. And you can do that right down to the level of individual words. And I have a sneaking suspicion that on the day that he won, the uh, taco emoji probably saw a not insignificant spike in usage across the whole internet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I absolutely. definitely contributed to that, I might add. Yeah, I mean, so did I, you know, like I, I don't think I'd heard of him before. So yeah, the first thing you do is you go on pro cycling stats and be like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, he's been around. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, really, really good win. And then obviously from a tech perspective, you know, quite exciting to kind of analyze where he made the gain. So that was really good. Um so yeah, like like we said, there's not much of a new tech, but there are still a kind of um, 
a few kind of little talking points. And one of the most kind of both jumping forward in the race, one of the kind of more recent ones is we saw a, uh, you know, we've seen quite a lot of rain at this year's Giro. Now, that's not that unusual. But you and I, Jack, have had this conversation before that one of the things that's really come on in recent years is wet weather gear. And but it's quite interesting to see there's a kind of still, even in the professional peloton, there's a disparity between teams about who gets the really good kit and then the teams that perhaps, you know, sponsored by clothing brands that don't make quite so good kit. Yeah, totally. I, I just want to stress the point. I test and ride a lot of different gear and I really do think wet weather gear is where we've seen genuine improvements in cycling kit in the last, we'll call it five to 10 years. Now, I don't know if I've mentioned before, Simon, but I grew up in Bonnie, Scotland, <laughs> which is famed for its uh, wet climate. So I like to think I have a, a well-attuned nose for what makes good uh, wet weather cycling gear. And like you said, you can see exactly where teams have got a bit of an advantage in that area. And one thing you've picked out, and I think is so true, is the cut of some of the kit. And in particular, one place where you really can make an advantage in having high-performing and also comfortable wet weather gear is in the cut. And you reckon that Team Ineos maybe have got something custom. Yeah, I think so. The jackets just seem to fit them all so well. And, you know, we all know that the kind of compromise that typically comes with a rain jacket is that it, it, it tends to be a little bit baggier because obviously, you know, manufacturers uh, allow a little room for you to wear it over, say, like a winter jersey or something like that. But Team Ineos's rain jackets seem to fit really, really well, especially in contrast to some of the other teams who perhaps are just using off-the-peg uh, jackets. And and I think, it, you know, one, so that's obviously an aerodynamic advantage. And if they're having to wear it all day, it means they're not kind of like losing all of that optimization that the kind of engineers have worked so hard for. But um, but two, you know, Ineos being sponsored by Castelli, who has a, you know, famously have a kind of very large range of wet weather gear, have a number of options that I think some of the other teams don't have. And obviously the Gabba jacket is one of those ones that, you know, became quite iconic a few years ago when we had that Milan-San Remo where kind of, you know, we saw a lot of teams from, riders from different teams buying gabbers in the shop and then using marker pens to black it all out. And so, but, you know, now a few brands have copied that style of jacket with that kind of uh, semi-waterproof, semi-thermal fabric from Gore-Tex that is very stretchy and it fits very well. But I don't know, I, you know, I still see quite a few teams who maybe don't have access to a jersey like that. And on the stage that went over the Paso Gal the other day, you know, Igamba now attacked and he won. I think his kit was, you know, he was very lucky. He seemed to be wearing over his pink jersey, which you know, he took off all his jackets to show his pink jersey at the end, which was very classy. But earlier on in the day, he had been wearing a long sleeve Gabba jacket. And then on top of that, he'd had a, uh, you know, a very fancy Castelli rain jacket. Whereas I think a lot of the other teams had to choose between either wearing a baggier rain jacket or maybe a kind of, you know, a thermal winter jersey that perhaps wasn't as waterproof. And so you can see where the compromise comes in. And on a, on a really tough stage like that, having that really top quality kit, I think must have made a big difference. Yeah, I mean, I don't think old Egan would mind me saying so, but he's quite a little man. And I have no doubt that he probably feels the cold. He's a professional cyclist after all. And being comfortable and happy on your bike, relatively speaking here, um, it will make a massive psychological difference, let alone a physical one. You're going to be far less fatigued from trying to keep yourself warm. You know, even if you're pushing a bazillion watts up a climb, if you're that little and you know you're about to descend on the other side, yeah, I think it makes a genuine difference. And like you said, as well as having the aero advantage of a well-fitted jacket, there's also a kind of 
insulating advantage of that as well. We're not blowing fresh cold air in constantly. So yeah, I definitely agree with that one, Simon. Yeah, and it's funny as well, you know, and I think it's, you know, as you say, it's kind of come a long way in the last five to 10 years uh, specifically. And it's really interesting to kind of contrast this back to uh, some of the more epic stages in Giro history as well, because there was a lot of chat around. So um, for those who haven't been following the race, the this this that stage, which was, you know, kind of colloquially called the Queen stage of the Giro d'Italia, meaning the kind of, you know, the big day in the mountains, uh, was shortened because of the kind of uh, extreme weather that was forecast. And they originally had planned to go over kind of four mountain passes, but uh, the weather was forecast to be, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's May in the Dolomites, so the weather is changeable and the, way, the weather was forecast to be very bad. And so the organisers shortened the stage and obviously that led to a certain amount of, um, you know, debate on social media and things like that because, you know, we want to see those kind of epic stages and it's obviously very easy to, <laughs> to sit at home in your nice mm. warm couch and wish that the riders would, you know, replicate the kind of Giro to the 80s when we mm -hmm. saw riders, you know, riding through the snow in kind of woolen gloves, no no leg warmers, you know. Just no, with a copy of a newspaper <laughs> stuffed down the front of their jersey. Yeah, so it's, it's I think it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting in the sense that, you know, the sport has progressed since then. But the clothing has also progressed a lot as well, so maybe it, the sport's getting slightly easier on both fronts. Maybe, but it's but it's but it's you know it's an interesting debate, and I, and I, I, you know, I know you're a fan of the an ultra endurance ride, and I wonder if you know do you, do you think the sport is is sort of changing from an ultra endurance sport to more of a speed sport? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do, yeah. and I think you know there's a in, in contrast to this, there's the kind of ultra endurance scene I've just been following. This is totally unrelated to the Giro, but anyway, I've been following uh, the Highland Trail 550, which is a big bike packing race in the north of Scotland. And I think unlike back in the day, there is space now everywhere with the amount of content that's produced constantly around all forms of competition for them to sit side by side. So I don't think I would ever say I bemoan the loss of these truly, in big commas, epic stages um, there's just something else for riders to watch and enjoy instead. And uh, I'm sure they're both equally as hard as each other. Now, Simon, I feel like beating a dead horse. Should we talk about rim brakes? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, obviously, you know, Team Ineos, I know that was, this was one of the things, obviously, because it was a wet day, the the, the stage finished on a descent. And again, we're still talking about this, um, the day that went over the Paso Jao. And obviously, Gamba now won and he was on rim brakes. And so, you know, we've seen a few memes kind of popping up that sort of <laughs> bemoaning disc brakes and saying, oh, well, you know, disc brakes can't be that great if this guy won on rim brakes. And obviously, you know, it's a, it's a slightly nuanced debate. And, and Team Ineos are the only team left running exclusively rim brakes. There was a really good one, actually, on the SRAM, uh, like the actual SRAM Road Instagram account where somebody had said something along the lines of, well, you know, if Egan Bernal can win on rim brakes, then, uh, you know, doesn't that prove we don't need disc brakes? And the, the SRAM themselves replied saying, yes, but how many of us can count ourselves as Egan Bernal, which I thought was very funny. Yeah, and I think that's the thing, isn't it? That, uh, you know, from my experience, you know, I'm, I wouldn't dream of classing myself as an incredible bike handler. And, you know, my experience of braking on carbon rims is terrible. Uh, whereas disc brakes are really, really good, and then you still have aero kind of carbon rims. And I know that you, you know, you could have 
could get a set of head jets and have an aluminium brake surface and an aero fairing. And, and I think head jets are a really great wheel, but they're not, you know, that design of wheel is, is not widely available. And I think it's, you know, one, I think it's interesting that Agamba Nell actually only won that stage by kind of uh, 30 odd seconds or so. And I think Roman Bardet and Damiana Caruso, who were chasing behind him, actually seemed to make up quite a lot of time on the descent. And they were both riding disc brakes. Uh, and Agamba Nell didn't use the lightweight Mylenstein wheels that Ineos are you know, kind of famous for using at the moment and instead chose to stick with Shimano C60 wheels, which are presumably you know, a few hundred grams heavier. But I do wonder if those wheels break slightly better in the wet than the lightweights. And he was prepared to give up you know, 300 grams, even on a mountain stage, for better braking. And if that's the case, then maybe it's worth three or 400 grams extra for the better braking of disc brakes? I don't know, Jack. Have I? Is that a galaxy brain? <laughs> I mean, you would say so. I, you know, the 300 gram difference between those wheels, even on a mountain stage, I don't think would add up to a significant saving overall across a whole day. As you would, if you were replying to someone who said something spicy in a comment on Bike Radar, <laughs> you'd link them to that bike calculator thing you always yeah. refer to. But, um, you know, as we, oh God, how many times have we said this, Simon? Pro cycling is a very conservative sport and... I think even if you put it right under the nose and could say definitively that a disc brake version of that bike would be faster than rim brakes for X, Y, Z reasons, you'd still have a hard time convincing a lot of people. So a Galaxy Brain moment, yes. But I will, I will give them, I will give them one uh, point, which is, which is, you know, which is fair. And when I spoke to uh, Ineos's uh, head mechanic. Last year, it was Diego Costa. He was the head mechanic at the Tour de France last year. He pointed out that the advantage of riding a rim brake bike is that because the wheels have quick releases, you can swap a wheel with a teammate very easily in the event of a puncture. And, you know, unless it, it's, you know, you can obviously ride with the little Allen key lever in your kind of through axle on the bike. It's just a slightly slower process than undoing a, undoing a quick release lever and, and then slamming a teammate's wheel on. In, in a kind of uh, a sticky situation, shall we say. So, and, and obviously in pro cycling, that is a very important thing and that might save them a few seconds. So I, I can see from, from that point of view why you would do it. But then, you know, my sort of solution to that would just be, you know, maybe <laughs> to carry a, an Allen key or develop a better through axle, something like that. I, I, yeah, so, um, yeah. But that, that, that's the only thing I can sort of still see. It's a bit like how, you know, pros sort of say, oh, we need to ride tubular so that we can ride on flats. Like, well, once that disappears, you know, which it has now with kind of tubeless tyre liners, then I've still not, con- I'm not really convinced there's any more reason to do it other than tradition. Simon, I don't need to say too much on this sort of stuff. All these good ideas, there's a high chance you could end up getting poached by a team as a professional optimizer. <laughs> I don't think there's much chance of that. All of my ideas are just stolen from other professional optimizers <laughs> who can actually well, back up no. their claims with, with data. I'm just kind of relaying the information to our lovely audience. Well... Someone's got to do it, Simon. Now, time trials. People might guess that you are a bit of a time trial fetishist. uh, And as usual, you've been looking out for the usual tropes of tech optimization. Talk us through them. Yeah, that's right. So there's two time trials at this year's uh, Tour of Italy. And at the time of recording this, we've only seen one of those. And that was on the opening day. Uh, There is a second one at the end of the race, but we haven't seen that yet, sadly. So we, uh, we can't tell you what happened. But on the first stage, obviously, it was a flat 8.6-kilometre course and was won by the uh, world time trial champion, Filippo Garner, who is an absolute powerhouse. 
as you certainly is. As you know, he looks like a powerhouse. He has this kind of quite uh, ominous, should we say, threatening figure. He looks like he could just slice you in half if he rode into you. He's an absolute unit. The thing is, you know, I think he looks like a unit amongst a kind of grand tour cohort, <laughs> but he actually only weighs eighty kilos. So, I mean, that's that's relatively normal in terms of yep, yeah. <laughs> average people and i think he you know when yeah you put him up against a a climber he he looks like a kind of rugby player but <laughs> yeah, i think he's actually just more like a relatively normal person but he produces a really you know pretty phenomenal amount of power in a very aerodynamic position and he corners like an absolute nutter on a time trial bike <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah it, he went he went very very fast and but, you know obviously so did a lot of other people uh, and it was a, it was a close close fought race. It wasn't there was you know it was kind of all the usual stuff that we're used to seeing now. And if you know very big chain rings, fifty eight teeth were common. Uh, custom aero extensions, which kind of molded to riders' forearms. You know, lots of tubeless wheels, lots of clinchers, all of that kind of classic stuff. I think you know the the kind of interesting point from my point of view is that we're seeing wheels getting pretty deep again now and. You know, deep, real, really deep section wheels had a kind of moment, you know, a, f- a few years ago under riders like Fabian Cancellara. And I remember that he used to quite enjoy running a Zip 1080 up front. But that really went, so a 10, sorry, to, so for those who don't know, a Zip 1080 was basically a 100 millimeter deep wheel. It's pretty deep. It's pretty deep. <laughs> but of course, you know, as anyone who's ridden deep section wheels will know, is that they, they can be a bit of a handful in the wind. Well, they used to be. Whereas nowadays, you know, we've kind of, you know, more modern uh, rim shapes that are slightly wider, more curved rims, they're not sort of flat V shapes. I think, you know, from my perspective, uh, deep section wheels get much easier to handle. And a lot, you know, there were maybe at least three in the top 10 were using Aero Coach Titan wheels, which again, have a, have a rim 100 millimeters deep. Now, that's a very deep rim, Jack. Have you ever ridden a rim that deep? No, never. <laughs> No, maybe I have. No, I've ridden an 80 or something, I think, on a time trial bike once, very briefly, uh, before the bike quite spectacularly failed. But that's a story for another day. Um, and it wasn't nearly as bad as I thought, though. I wasn't riding on a windy stage. Actually, very briefly, Simon, pretend that I haven't had to listen to you talk about Aerotech for the last uh, year and a half. Explain to me, as if I was a big baby, why in a time trial people don't run a double disc wheel, for example. Is it, in fact, slower? No, so actually, so th- I thought it was just against the rules because obviously, you know, as, as we sort of said, you know, deep section rims can cause handling issues because if the wind catches the rim, it can push you off course. And obviously at the front, you know, where, you, where the steering is, that, that can be a problem. At the back, it, it's, not so, it's not such a big deal because you get a buffet of wind at the back wheel. It doesn't, it doesn't push your handlebars, so it doesn't, necess- it doesn't necessarily cause you to steer in a direction you weren't expecting. But... It's, it's purely that handling issue. There's actually no rule against it. And, uh, you know, a kind of an industry contact who shall remain <laughs> nameless um, has said that, you know, a few teams have sort of tested out a front disc wheel and you know, there are a couple of riders who would be open to riding them if the kind of course was correct and that, that sort of thing. Because, you know, a disc wheel is the, is the fastest option as mm. anyone who you know, has ridden a time trial before. It's, it's, it's the deepest rim you can have. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, there you go. That's, I just there's an interesting little juicy tidbit. Yeah. Perhaps we will. Um, yes, you are right. The kind of 
Deep Wheel is definitely making a comeback. But I think what's, you know, to, to summarise the past year and a bit of kind of time trial coverage we've done on Bike Radar, I think what really stands out for me is that everyone's doing this now. And obviously there's smaller teams maybe don't necessarily have the tech or the, the budget, and you do still see really small teams running just the regular bikes for the time trial stages where they're probably not in with a shout anyway to get into that, that those top places. But really, like teams are clearly paying attention to it in a much bigger way than they have previously. Maybe they've been reading your articles, actually. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think what they've probably seen is that, you know, it's the likes of um, Team Sky and now, you know, now Team Ineos Grenadier is that, you know, there's a lot of time to be made up in time trials and it's a very controllable event. There's no tactics. You know, if you mm. have a good power to drag ratio, you're going to go fast and you can basically buy time by just throwing money at aero testing <laughs> and fancy wheels. And and so, yeah, we're seeing more and more teams, especially the kind of bigger budget teams, you know, like Team Ineos, uh, Team Jumbo, Jumbo Visma, you know, they're using a lot of non-sponsor correct equipment in the time trials as well, which they're, you know, they're less likely to do in a road stage. And, you know, for a sport like cycling, which is so reliant on sponsors, that's that's quite a big deal. And so there has, you know, there's been a, a bit of comment around that, but this is how much difference that tech makes, I guess. You know, it, it, a f- you know four, five seconds over 40 kilometers might not sound like much in a kind of road race scenario, but in a time trial scenario, you know, that's the difference between, you know, maybe the winning and coming fifth or 10th or something like that. So the, the gains make a very obvious difference in in the time trial because it's very easy to see how it translates into into free time essentially very nicely summed up simon yes i will be watching with as beady eye as you do the next time trial stage when it comes around finally something that's not really bike tech at all but definitely caused almost as much discussion as anything that would uh, happen in the tech world was the somewhat abysmal TV coverage uh, that was on one of the recent stages. Yeah, so, so again, we're going to talk about the Queen stage, the Paso Jal stage. And as, and as I said, the kind of because the stage was shortened uh, due to the weather, that also meant that the kind of... Uh, so the way the TV coverage for a bike race is done is a plane goes up in the air and the helicopters go up in the air and they kind of fly around and they pick up the signals from the motorbikes that are obviously traveling along with the riders and then relay those television pictures back to the kind of organizers who are who have a base you know at the finish line and then you know we see those pictures on our lovely televisions now if the plane can't get in the air and the helicopters can't get in the air then there's obviously nothing to relay those images back and so the the backup plan apparently was to rely on a kind of 4G signal to stream pictures back from the motorbikes to uh, to the organisers so that they could show us the pictures. But obviously, you know, as you can imagine, a 4G signal in the Dolomites, it you know that didn't really work. So what we were treated to <laughs> was nothing. <laughs> Essentially, we didn't really see much of the race and. It was kind of like uh, in Scandinavia, atmospheric slow TV where basically nothing happens. Uh, it was kind of like that. <laughs> it was. It's the thing is, it was really like that. And, and you know, it's obviously I, I haven't organised a bike race, and mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't take. It's not like football. It doesn't take place in a in a stadium. 
I'm sure it's incredibly difficult and they did their best and, you know, that was the best that they could do on the day. But I really do, you know, I, I, I we didn't even seem to be getting kind of updates from the motorbikes as to what was happening. So the commentators just had to kind of, you know, chat random stuff for, for three <laughs> or four hours because they, we didn't even know what was happening. And occasionally we would get a, oh, there's a gap between these two riders, but it wasn't even like radio where you could, you know, get a feed of what was happening mm. from people. And people were searching on Twitter for kind of information from the side of the road and things like that. And, you know, I know cycling is, is a special sport and it's, and it's a very unique sport and all of these things, but it's also, you know, it felt, it felt a bit amateurish. I don't, you know, I don't, that sounds very harsh, but, you know, if you're a sponsor for a team and that's yeah. the queen stage and, you know, everyone tunes in for it and then there's no pictures... It's not a great look. It's not a great look, and and uh, yeah, I, you know, I want to be totally sympathetic to the people that um, produce all these things. I I knew a person years ago who used to do like live mixing for sport events, and it sounded outrageously stressful, like ludicrously high pressure environment. And I've no doubt they're equally as frustrated as us. But at the same time, it's a predictable issue. Cycling's been around for a long time, and it just makes it a much harder proposition when, like you say, you're trying to sell sponsorship to teams. And if there's no team, Simon, and there's no money, there won't be any bike racing. And then we won't have anything to talk about in podcasts. No, exactly. Well, that's the so, thing, right? If the bike brands aren't sponsoring pro teams, where are all the new race bikes going to come from? I mean, exactly. It's a big issue. So I, I do agree it was it was pretty disappointing. And I've no doubt it was disappointing to those that subscribe to, you know, TV streaming services yeah so. and so like like you say i don't want to be too harsh on the organizers and i'm sure that they did their absolute best that was possible and you know filming a live event in the dolomites on a kind of snowy wet day is in clear is clearly incredibly hard so you know let that go absolutely acknowledged and but i think you know as a sport you know we, we have these things all the time like cycling as a sport just needs to do better and you know Maybe with 5G coming, that that kind of might solve it. But I'm not. Yeah, maybe the technology doesn't exist to solve this problem yet. Um, but it it was a real shame. And and like you say, it's kind of this happens. You know, basically every time it rains and snows in the mountains. And and so I, I do I do wonder if the case of like you know I haven't even I haven't seen if there's even been kind of highlights packages of recorded footage mm. from the motorbikes, for example. But I don't know. I don't know if there is, and if there is, then the sport should do more to let us know that. Okay, so maybe you didn't get to see it live, but here's all the recorded footage from the race, and you can watch it afterwards, and we can see what happened. But that stuff doesn't really seem to get communicated. No doubt, some TV production people are smashing their uh, headphones or speakers now, going, "Idiots! I don't know anything about TV production." What we really need is somebody like. Elon Musk. We need the cycling world to collectively massage the ego of Elon Musk so he puts a satellite above the Giro for the whole time. Something like that. That'd be helpful. Yeah. I'm sure he would as well. Yeah. Maybe Bike Radar could do a crowd funder for <laughs> a satellite to sit over Central Europe so we can uh, so we can broadcast all the Grand Tours. <sighs> well, yeah. Okay. Well, that, I think that was probably about all about... I think that was probably it for the Giro d'Italia obviously there are still a few days left and there's a time trial at the end and obviously if there is anything interesting we will talk about it on bikeradar.com so 
do not fear. If there's any more juicy tech images, I am. I promise you, I am trawling <laughs> images oh. and videos, and I'm hoping for a scoop at some point. So if there's anything at all, bikeradar.com will have it. But with that, thank you very much, Jack. Thank you very much, Simon. It was a pleasure to talk to you and get an insight into the inner workings of your nerdy little brain. <laughs> anytime and uh, thank you to you for listening of course and if you have enjoyed this podcast don't forget to like it or leave us a review you know leave a comment on the article if you're listening to it via biteradar.com we always love your feedback and i'll be around to answer any questions and if yeah if you're a tv producer and you want to tell me that you know i'm an idiot <laughs> and i'm naive and i don't know anything then I would also be very happy to hear from you because I would really love to know that if there is a solution to this, what is it? Let us know. And with that, thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bike Radar.